You are listening to Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with book news, recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 87, and I believe I got the episode wrong last time. And I'm recording on Friday, October 7th, after the world's busiest week playing catch-up. I am recently back from a whirlwind road trip up to Northern California to attend the memorial of someone I'd known for over 38 years. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but have very close ties to Northern California, and it was a very bittersweet weekend with lots of tears and laughs, and I got to spend some quality time with great friends whom I don't get to see enough of. And I think I was buzzing on such adrenaline that now I'm feeling really, really zapped of all my energy. But there's no time to rest for this hockey mom. People keep asking me what I'm watching on TV these days, and I'm like, TV? Who has time to watch any TV? I think the last time I got to watch TV was when I had COVID, but I definitely don't want that again. My latest quirk, if you can keep up with them, is that I've been really into cultivating seeds over here. See, this is another reason why I have no time for TV. I've become obsessed with saving all the seeds from all of the fruit we eat and even some of the veggies too, and then I try and get plants to grow. I'm currently working on 12 avocado plants. They take forever to split open if you keep the seeds half-soaked in water. And also stone fruit seeds are fascinating. I have a bunch of peach plum and pluot seeds from the summer that I saved that each went into their own jar filled with compost and a little bit of water. And then they go in the fridge for like four months because they won't germinate unless they think they've experienced a full winter. If you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen that I recently visited the Seed Bank, a store in Petaluma, and I came home with... Shocker, even more seeds. So many different kinds of seeds. My husband grows hot peppers and makes his own hot sauce, so I got him some jigsaw pepper seeds because that was the only kind of pepper seed for sale that I had never heard of. And I'm even painting seeds in my art journal now because I just love all of the organic shapes from these different seeds. Who knew I'd become seed obsessed, but that's where I am. And you may be laughing at me now, but You're going to want me to be your best friend if we ever end up off the grid, because who's going to have all the avocado trees? I will. I am still giving away one copy of the recently published novel, Three Muses, and your chances of winning are pretty high right now. All you have to do to enter is to go to my Instagram account at Jennifer Calogaris, or you can find it by searching for books or my people. Scroll until you see my Three Muses giveaway post and leave a comment. That's it. You can tag friends for extra entries and share in your stories for an extra entry. And this giveaway will close on October 13th. And I will contact the winner on October 14th. Open to U.S. mailing addresses only. And thank you again to Martha Ann Toll for this giveaway. And now it's time for some bookish news. As I publish this podcast every other week, I'm obviously late to announce the death of beloved British author Hilary Mantel, who died at what feels like the very young age of 70. She is best known for her Wolf Hall trilogy, which follows the life of Thomas Cromwell, who worked alongside Henry VIII. It's one of my favorite time periods to read about, guillotines and all. Mantel won the Booker Prize twice for Wolf Hall and also for Bring Up the Bodies, the sequel. And if you're interested in learning more about Mantel, you can read her 2003 memoir, 
giving up the ghost which follows her life growing up in poverty in Manchester, as well as her struggles with endometriosis. The novel The Gunkel will be a film. Everyone loves this book. Why haven't I read it yet? I don't know. It's about a reclusive, once-famous gay television star who takes his young niece and nephew into his Palm Springs home after their mother dies suddenly, introducing them to his outsized life and unique wisdom, and bringing about healing for all three. I don't know when the movie adaptation is coming out, but I don't think it will be for a while, so I still have time to read it. Brandon Taylor, who wrote the phenomenal novel Real Life, published in 2020, which was a finalist for the Booker Prize, will be publishing his second novel, also a campus novel involving characters who attend the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where Taylor went to graduate school. His new novel will be coming out in May, and I'm very excited to read this. Geraldine Brooks's novel Horse will also be a film. This book is based on the true story of the record-breaking racehorse Lexington and his enslaved groom. The novel tells the sweeping story that unfolds against the backdrop of modern-day race relations in America as an interracial couple embarks on a quest to uncover the mysteries of Lexington's story. So this week's news involves mostly books I have yet to read. And today's guest recommendation comes from Amy Tector, author of The Foulest Things, which is a murder mystery slash detective novel centered around junior archivist Jess Kendall, who discovers a series of mysterious letters chronicling life in Paris at the start of the Great War. She dives into research in Dominion's art vault, where she stumbles upon the body of one of her colleagues. This book weaves together threads that include a World War I era mystery, a priceless Rembrandt, and of course, murder. Hi, I'm Amy Tector, and I'm a novelist and author of the forthcoming The Foulest Things. I want to recommend Ruman Alam's wonderful Leave the World Behind. It's the eerie story of a family who leaves New York City for a vacation on Long Island, uh, and uh, they do the sort of normal mundane things, buy the groceries, argue, I worry about their children uh, until one night there's a rap at the door late at night and it's the uh, home's owners returning saying that something terrible has happened in New York City and the, the owners can't go back um, back to New York and can they stay in the vacation home with them. And things become very unsettled at that point because the internet is down, cell phone service is down, the family has no way of determining whether or not these owners are telling the truth. They have no way of knowing what's happening in the world. Um, And it's just a slow unraveling not only of the family, but of their relationships, of who they think they are, and and maybe (laughs) of the world itself. It's eerie, it's unsettling, it's beautifully written. I read it a year ago, and I still find myself thinking about it. Thanks again, Amy, for the recommendation, and everyone, go check out Amy's new novel, The Foulest Things. I don't have too many out-and-paperback books to share with you because a lot were very Santa-themed, and I just wasn't into it, so I'll share the ones that excited me. My first pick is My Monticello, which is short fiction by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. This is set in the near future, and the first story is actually a novella called My Monticello, and it tells of a diverse group of Charlottesville neighbors fleeing violent white supremacists. Johnson's characters all seek out home through these stories as a place and as an internal state. 
And again, that's My Monticello by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. Next is A Carnival of Snackery Diaries, 2003 to 2020 by David Sedaris. Of course, he's known for his humorous essays, and if you are a fan of his, I think you'll enjoy this book. And that's A Carnival of Snackery's Diaries, 2003 to 2020. Next is Her Hidden Genius by Marie Benedict. She is the queen of historic novels. I believe I recommended this book on the show when it first came out, but it's about Rosalind Franklin, a scientist who worked on DNA, and it's about how she discovered the double helix structure of DNA. And more generally, it's about a woman trying to survive in a field that was dominated by men and how these men work to both silence her and steal her ideas. And again, that's Her Hidden Genius by Marie Benedict. Next up is Ephemeral Wings by Eva Silverfine. Eva has been a previous guest on the show, and her latest novel is about Maggie, a mayfly, in this novel that, yes, is an anthropomorphization of an insect, but also a literary fable. And again, that's Ephemeral Wings by Eva Silverfine. Finally is A Minor Chorus by Billy Ray Belcourt, And this takes place in Northern Alberta, where a queer Indigenous doctoral student steps away from his dissertation to write a novel, informed by a series of poignant encounters, snapshots from one man's life and the people he meets. I've heard wonderful things about this book. And again, it's called A Minor Chorus by Billy Ray Belcourt. And that is my Out in Paperback Roundup. A.M. Holmes is the author of 13 books, among them the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, The End of Alice, and Jack, and the short story collections Days of Awe, The Safety of Objects, and Things You Should Know. She also writes for film and television and teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton University. So welcome to the podcast. Where are you calling in from today? At the moment, I'm in New York City. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. This is such a thrill for me. I'm a huge, huge fan of your work. I've recommended both This Book Will Save Your Life and May We Be Forgiven on this very podcast. And I've even used your story, A Real Doll, from your collection, The Safety of Objects, to teach short fiction at UCLA Extension's Writers Program. So this is just such a treat for me. So tell listeners what your latest novel, The Unfolding, is about. The Unfolding, I would say, is a braided narrative. It is a state-of-the-nation novel that is set over a 77-day period from uh, November of 2008, when, as the folks in my book would describe it, John McCain lost to Barack Obama, to uh, January of 2009, Obama's inauguration day. And it's about the sort of political, social structure of I guess it's sort of a, a rich white Republican cohort. Within that is the big guy and his daughter, Megan, and his wife, Charlotte. And part of the brain is one part is a large kind of social, political, cultural exploration. And the other is a more intimate domestic narrative about the big guy and his family. Megan votes for the first time in 2008 and begins to have her own kind of awakening to the idea that she may not see the world the same way as her parents do. 
This novel is so many things. Daughter Megan's coming of age and her relationship with her parents that you referenced. It's an alternate history as well as social commentary mixed in with political satire. How did you land on American politics as the focus of your novel? That's a good question. I mean, I I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I would say as much as this book is not set in Washington, D.C., it is my Washington novel. Because as a child, I was witness to a lot of strangeness. Kids whose parents, they didn't know what they did for a living. They worked for the CIA, but no one knew. (laughs) Um, We'd get new classmates every four years. There was a kind of absurdity to life in Washington, and it was only when Watergate happened, and that sort of dovetailed with my own coming of age, that I also began to realize that Washington was not just a small, weird southern town that was dysfunctional, but it was the capital of this country. And that was a huge, like, both wake-up call and giant sort of internal, uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. And so that's really where the seeds for this come from. I'm always intrigued when authors make the decision not to name a character. In your case, why the choice not to give the big guy a name? I think because the big guy really is um, symbolic or emblematic of big guys. So men who occupy space in a certain way by virtue of sort of their privilege and their assumption that they are welcome in places, that they have some authority or ownership of place. And so to me, that is a color, a character that I want the reader to color in on their own and to sort of have their own you know, sense of who is, who is their big guy. So many things in this novel feel like they could have easily transpired because we're living in such fraught and absurd times, as you mentioned. What sort of research did you need to conduct in order to accurately write about what happens behind closed doors in the political arena? You know, I I have become increasingly sort of obsessed by uh, history and the evolution of political and social culture. So I would say I did a lot of research sort of looking back at America from the end of World War II till now. Um, everything from campaigns, literally, you know, election slogans, who ran, uh, in terms of characters like John McCain, who were his supporters, where did they come from, how much money did they put in. So there's a ton of that kind of detail that goes into things, but also a lot of social and cultural detail. So whether it's a character like Metzger, who is um, an ad guy from Chicago, he's talking about candy made in the Chicago area. It's all pretty much fact-based. I would say the majority of things that are referenced in this book, one way or another, actually have happened in reality uh, somewhere. You know, it's not it's fiction, but it's also in a, an interesting way, not really. Excellent. And you can't really have believable factual accuracy without, like you mentioned, the, the cultural context, which you just get so right in this novel. I just wanted to hear a little bit about your writing routine and if you can, perhaps what you're currently working on. Sure. I am a person who I like to get up early, the AM. (laughs) It always teases me about it, but I really am a morning person. So a good day for me is a day where I'm not teaching and I don't have other deadlines, but I can get up early and just go to my desk and work. I would say I try to get almost several sessions of writing in so I can, you know, write for an hour or two and then I need to take a break and then maybe another session. A a really good day has three of those in it. Um, And usually the last one is more about note-taking or revision in some way. Um, What I'm working on now, I would say I've been making notes about a book on craft. Um, I've been writing a little bit more sort of memoir material that I may or may not do something with, but I felt like I wanted to sort of get some things on paper. 
And I'm still very actively thinking about uh, the big guy and Megan and Charlotte and wondering what comes next for them. Um, so there may even be, if not a whole other book, there may be another episode in some way. Oh, that's great. I know a lot of fans will look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for answering my questions. And we're going to move on to book recommendations. So what is your first pick? My first pick is a book called Secret City by James Kerchick. Um, Shall I tell you a little bit about it? Yes, please. So James Kerchick is a writer, obviously. And he, he wrote a book about the history of gay Washington. And I have to say, in my novel, The Unfolding, there is a character, Tony, the big guy's best friend who is gay and closeted and was in a way representative of a kind of person that I knew when I was growing up there. But about two months ago, Secret City by James Kerchick came out and it's such a large scale history of the gay subculture in Washington that I find it to be just brilliant, honestly. And it it captures so much of what I sort of thought I knew, but now it sort of proves it. In thinking about reading Secret City, it felt to me like in some ways, what Kerchick is representing is a piece of our larger sense of history that's otherwise been unaccounted for. So I think Secret City is as much American history as it also is gay history. And the book is called Secret City, and the author is James Kerchick. I definitely want to read that, and I know a lot of friends who would also be very interested. My first pick is Dinosaurs by Lydia Millet, and I'm a huge fan of her work, listeners, will remember my recommendation of a children's Bible when it came out last year. And in Lydia Millett's latest novel, protagonist Gil leaves New York and walks across the country for five months until reaching his new home in the Arizona desert, where the family next door lives in a literal glass house. His life becomes enmeshed with these neighbors. And Dinosaurs is really one of those tricky books to talk about because it covers so many prescient topics, including issues of privacy, politics, climate change, trust funds, and even birds who are close relatives of dinosaurs, which is how the novel got its title. It moves back and forth in time from the gill that existed in New York pre-election to a gill living in a very different America after having walked across the country. Uh, Millet's observational prose offers social commentary and reverence for nature, moving from melancholy to humor, and she gets to the heart of what matters to Gil and perhaps what should matter to the rest of us. It's certainly been one of my favorite reads of the year so far. Thank you to W.W. Norton and Company and to NetGalley for the advanced review copy. And again, that was Dinosaurs by Lydia Millet. What is your second pick? My second pick is Ancestor Trouble by Maud Newton. And this is a memoir um, that also falls into category of biography, parenting, and self-improvement. Um, you know, I grew up always liking to read biographies, actually. That was the thing I read, and I would sort of read about Eleanor Roosevelt or Babe Ruth and find myself in them. And in this book, Maud Newton's Ancestors, it's, it's the story of a family, and it's the story of a family that we all have these threads where you think, what's really true about my family? And why are certain things unexplained? And why is some person crazy? And who are we? And I guess as somebody who grew up adopted, me, grew up adopted and has written about that, I'm fascinated by identity, and I'm fascinated by, by the narratives of family. And so in this book, Maud Newton explores uh, mental illness in her family, religious fanaticism, there's all kinds of questions about uh, uh, sort of race and uh, 
it's, it's a really wild, unconventional Southern family that she grew up in. And it's just a wonderful story of coming to think about oneself and the world one lives in a little bit differently. And so I really, really enjoyed it and just am a huge fan. Ancestor Trouble by Maud Duke. Speaking of identity, I think you're going to enjoy my next pick, which is The Hero of This Book by Elizabeth McCracken. She is the author of many books, including one of my favorites, The Giant's House, which I know I've talked about before. The hero of this book rests in this liminal space between fiction and memoir. The reader is assured multiple times that this is, in fact, a work of fiction. But McCracken also toys with us, sort of subverting this idea as if she's daring the reader to interpret this novel as a memoir about McCracken's relationship with her mother. The narrative focuses on a woman who has recently lost her mother as she meanders through the streets of London where she used to travel with her mom. As she walks, she recalls memories, details about her mom, their relationship, and she also engages in larger discussions about writing and the blurred lines between fiction and memoir. This is a slim but beautifully written book, and it's an exploration of mother-daughter relationships, identity, grief, and a meta look at the act of writing itself, and perhaps a tribute to McCracken's own late mother, or not, since after all, this is a work of fiction. Thank you to Echo and to NetGalley for the advanced review copy. And again, that is The Hero of This Book by Elizabeth McCracken. What is your final pick for us today? Well, my final pick is called Figuring, and it is by Maria Popova. And some of your listeners may know Maria's work on brain pickings or the marginalia. And those are two um, blogs that she writes regularly. And Maria is just an incredibly brilliant writer about literature and science and humanity and this book figuring that she wrote a couple of years ago i don't know if everybody knows it but it is a book that explores love and sort of the search for truth and she goes through the lives of historical figures across four centuries so she begins with joannes kepler the astronomer who discovered the laws of planetary motion and then she goes you know through time and space and we end up with um Uh, the author Rachel Carson who really was the catalyst for the environmental movement and I guess what's so beautiful to me about this book is Maria's way of writing about artists and writers and scientists you know mostly women but she does it in a way that's just so astoundingly like poetry and so to me this was one of those reading pleasures where you I would read like a little bit of the book and then hold it with me for a while and then go back and read a little bit more. I would say it's a perfect book to give to people as a gift. Um, it really is a treat. And I, if you don't know her work, I would say look at the marginalia, look at brain pickings. She's really, really brilliant. And the book is called Figuring. The author is Maria Popova. I love books that you want to sit and consume all in one reading. And I also have a special place in my heart for just what you said, those kind of books where you don't even want to finish it because you never want to get to the end because you're just having such a delicious reading experience. Absolutely. The books you don't want to use up. It's been such an honor having you on the show. If you love reading about politics, alternate histories, stories about families, family secrets, dark comedy, this book has it all. Go and get yourself a copy of A.M. Holmes's The Unfolding. Where can people find you on social media? I'm at uh, NYC Novel on Twitter and amholmesbooks.com on the interweb net, as I call it. And I think that's, I'm not the biggest social media person. And that is okay. 
I will link up to The Unfolding and all of the other books we've talked about today to my bookshop.org shop, Books Are My People, or you can click through in the show notes where all of the books are listed. You can reach me at booksaremypeople at gmail.com and on Instagram at Jennifer Calogaris, or if the spelling of my name overwhelms you, you can always find me by searching for Books Are My People. And my last question is, what are you going to be reading next? Well, I'm reading right now an incredible book called Black Folk Could Fly by Randall Keenan. And Randall was one of my best friends who died last year, and this is just out. It's his posthumous collection of essays from Norton, and it's just brilliant and beautiful. Up next for me, I'm trying to decide between Big Swiss by Jen Beacon or The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. So maybe I'll just have to start a little bit of both this weekend. A special thank you to A.M. Holmes for being this week's guest, and I hope you all enjoy a wonderfully bookish week.